Romans chapter 5, I, I basically gave an introduction last night and I started talking about how that the church has missed the message and the method of evangelizing the world. I am not against the church. Jesus died for the church. I am for the true church, but there is a lot of religious churches and there's a lot of good churches where the people love God, but the message has gotten polluted along the way by religion. And I actually believe that the church, not, not the true church, but the religious church is probably the biggest obstacle in our world today to people knowing God. They're preaching a message of wrath and punishment and rejection that drives people away from God. And a lot of it comes from the Bible because in the Old Testament, there was a wrath that was released from God against man's sins. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 59, verse one, it says, my hand is, my arm is, let's see, how's it go? You got it? <laughs> Isaiah 59, one. Have we got that? It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and God. And people take that passage and other Old Testament passages and they say, Sure, God exists. Sure, God is real, but he won't move in your life because you've got sin in your life. And the vast majority of people that are in the church today, they believe that God exists and they believe that God has power, but they don't believe he will use that power on their behalf because they are sin conscious and they are still feeling separated from God because of their sin. In the new covenant, it's, I quoted this verse last night, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, To wit, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing man's trespasses unto them. In the new covenant, God isn't holding your sins against you. God is not angry at you because of your sins. Do you know that would get me kicked out of 90% of all of the churches in this area? Churches would be furious with me to say that God isn't imputing sins unto you. And yet that's a scripture. I quoted a scripture to you. But very few people let the word get in the way of what they believe. Man. And so sad to say, the, the wrong message has turned so many people away from God or has brought them into a semi-relationship with God, but has prevented them from having intimacy with God because they come so far short and their own conscience condemns them and they just won't let the love of God flow in their life. I began to try and counter some of that last night and we kind of summarized Romans chapter one up through uh, chapter five. And then we started last night on uh, Romans five thirteen. It says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law, when there is no law. Man, what a radical statement. Sin isn't imputed. And I, I explained last night that the word impute is like a legal term or an accounting term. It means that it's not recorded against you. It's not put on the books. It's never put to your account. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. The first 2,000 years after the fall of Adam and Eve, there was no law. And God wasn't imputing men's sins unto them. There was a period of innocency. And you know, I could spend hours demonstrating this. I'm just going to say some things quickly. I hope you'll go check this out. But take, for instance, uh, Abraham. 
Abraham is a man that if he would have lived under the law, would have been put to death. In Leviticus chapter 18, it is forbidden for you to marry a sister, a half-sister. It's against the law. And it says that it's an abomination. And if you do it, you have to be stoned to death. And if you don't stone them to death, you can be stoned to death for not enforcing the law. Abraham married his half-sister, Sarah. If he would have lived under the law, he would have been put to death. When do you think that God decided it was a sexual abomination to marry your half-sister? When Moses wrote it down in the law, the Bible says that God's the same. He doesn't change. It was wrong all of the time. But until the time of the law, God wasn't imputing man's sins against them. And so here's a man that according to Leviticus chapter 18 was living in a sexual abomination and God blessed him and made him the focus of his blessing and started an entire nation out of him. And he's the only person in the Old Testament up until the New Testament that was called the friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God, a man who was living in sexual sin. And then his grandson, Jacob, came along and Jacob married two women who were sisters. And Leviticus 18 says that's a sexual abomination. If you marry two sisters while the first sister is still alive, you have to be put to death. Jacob not only did that and committed a sexual uh, abomination to God, but he wrestled with an angel and prevailed. And God changed his name from Jacob to Israel and made him the uh, person that he blessed. And, and all of these awesome things came through him. You know, it's amazing how people miss this. But God was dealing with people in mercy and grace and not giving them what they deserved until the time of the law. Romans 5, 13, sin was in the world, but sin wasn't being imputed unto people until the law came. Most of us have had the law form an impression of who God is and how God reacts to sin that really is inconsistent because if you think about it, for 2,000 years, God dealt with people in mercy and grace and didn't punish them the way that we talk about it. There was a difference. And the reason God waited 2,000 years is because it wasn't God's nature to punish sin and to hate people for the sins that they committed. He was gracious. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. God was willing to extend mercy towards people, but people took his lack of judgment as approval and they didn't understand how deadly sin was. Even though God wasn't judging sin, Satan was destroying the human race through sin. And so God had to do something to restrain sin. So eventually he did give the law and there was a purpose for it and it was proper at the time, but it was only temporary until Jesus could come that would take our punishment, wipe out the sin question. And once again, God could operate with people in mercy and not in judgment. Amen. Boy, those are some major statements I said right there. Let me verify some of this to you. Look over in Genesis chapter three. Most people have this impression that when Adam and Eve sinned, immediately holy God could not stand the presence of unholy man. And so he had to run Adam and Eve out of the garden and separate them because they were unholy and he was holy. Let's look at this in Genesis chapter three. This is where Adam and Eve sinned. And then in Genesis chapter three 
And in verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Verse 23 says, therefore, that means when you see the word therefore, you're supposed to look and see what it's there for. (laughs) Therefore means this is the reason he sent man out of the garden. Why did he do it? In verse 22, so that he wouldn't take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He did not send man out of the garden because he was holy and they were unholy and holy God could not stand the presence of unholy man. That basically is the way that most religious people have assumed that immediately holy God just rejected and drove out unholy man because sin can't dwell in the presence of God's holy, uh, in God's holy presence. You know, in the fourth chapter, I'm going to show you this. We'll turn over there and read some of these this morning. But Jesus, the Lord, was still walking and talking with man in the fourth chapter. He was still extending mercy. God did not withdraw from man. He sent man from the garden, it says specifically, so they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever. Some people see that as a punishment, but actually, if you understand it properly, it's mercy. It's the goodness of God. Some of you may have a hard time embracing that. I don't want to spend all morning trying to make this point, but it's because God loved us that he didn't want us living forever in a corrupted body. For those who understand and accept the atonement that Jesus brought, did you know we've got a better life coming? Even most Christians are very short-sighted and they don't think about eternity the way we should. And we just think about this life and we look at dying as the end, but it's not. It's the beginning of a better life. It is so much better. You know, there's this show out that I like entitled Tuck Everlasting. I don't know if any of you ever saw that. But it's about a family that found this water and drank it and they couldn't die. And they were like 180 years old and they were miserable. They were miserable. And one of the lines in there that I like is he says, you know, there's life all around us. He was looking at the trees and the birds and he says, there's life and everything's growing and changing. And then it dies and new life comes. And he says, but we just are. We're like a rock. And it really showed the vanity of living forever and how bad it would be. I know that a lot of people think, man, you drew everything you can to extend your life, but we've got something better coming. Can you imagine what it would be like for a person who was born mentally retarded to live for 10,000 years mentally retarded and somebody have to take care of them for the rest of their life? They couldn't die. Can you imagine what it'd be like to have all of the Hitlers and the Mussolinis and all of the people that just gave themselves over to demons and are demon possessed? Can you imagine what it'd be like to have all of those people alive and there's no way for the world to ever be purged of that evil and for it to be over? Man, God provided something better. The Lord did not want us living forever. He didn't want people to be blind and deaf and hurt and in pain and cancer just destroying their body and yet it's impossible for them to die. Have all of these problems and yet impossible to exit this life. He provided something better for those who would accept 
his sacrifice that he was going to make for the earth. He did not want us living forever in these corrupted, sinful bodies, racked with discouragement and pain and all of these kind of things. And it was the love and the mercy and the goodness of God that drove men out of the garden, not because he wanted them to be away from him. In the fourth chapter, he's still walking and talking and fellowshipping with men. It was to get man away from the tree of life because he loved them and he had something better planned for them than living forever in a corrupted, sinful body. Isn't that a different attitude than most people think? This isn't rejection. This isn't punishment. This is actually an act of love. It's actually God having mercy and pity on his own creation. And then in the fourth chapter... It says, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering... He had not respect and Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. Now think about this. How did Cain and Abel know to bring offerings? There isn't anything recorded in these passages of scripture that God had instructed offerings. There is no reason that he would have instructed Adam and Eve about offerings in the garden because they didn't have any sin and there was no need for offerings. Where did they get this instruction about offerings? Well, the logical answer right here, he talks to him in an audible voice. The logical answer is God was still talking with man. He was still revealing himself to man. He hadn't just kicked them out and now God had nothing to do with the human race. See, that's an assumption that people make. But again, I say that it was love that he drove them out of the garden and God was still walking and talking with them. Some people say that Abel's offering was accepted because it was a blood sacrifice and Cain's was a um, offering of his first fruits, and that's the reason it wasn't accepted. Well, it is true that a blood sacrifice is the only thing that can cover sins, but the scripture tells us that we're supposed to bring the first fruits of our ground, and it's prescribed under the law. I don't believe that it was the substance that was the problem. Over in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It wasn't the substance, it was the attitude of the heart. But where did Cain get this revelation? You could say that Abel saw it by example in the third chapter because when Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal, slayed an animal and took the skins of the animal to make clothes for Adam and Eve. So there was a type of that and you could say that they saw the necessity for something being killed to cover their sins. But where did Cain come up with this Uh, offering of the first fruits that was commanded in scripture 2000 years later. How did he know these things? It's not just intuitive. It's apparent that God was still talking with them. And the fact that they came and offered sacrifices, the fact that they offered the first fruits of the ground and all of these things are indicative that God was still talking to man. You don't see any difference in God between the fourth chapter and the third chapter. God changed their location because he didn't want them to live forever in that sinful state, but he was still walking and talking with them. And then it says that he had acceptance of Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. How did he show that one was accepted and one was rejected? If two people came here and offered a sacrifice, how would you know that one was right and one was wrong? 
Well, it's obvious that he talked to him in an audible voice. God was still present. God was still manifesting himself unto people. Second generation, he was giving them instructions about what was the right way to live. And there was still communication and interaction between God and man. And he showed that one sacrifice was accepted and one was wrong. And when Cain got upset, he killed his brother Abel. And the Lord said unto uh, Cain, and this is before he killed his brother in verse 6, the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth and why is thy countenance fallen? Now we just read this and don't think about it. How did the Lord say this to him? He wasn't born again. He wasn't hearing this through his spirit. God was talking to him in an audible voice. God was still present. Here were sinful men that God was still fellowshipping with and talking to in an audible voice. God did not cut them off and excommunicate them and have nothing to do with them in the fourth chapter from the third chapter. God was still dealing in mankind. You know why? Because until the law, God wasn't imputing sin. He wasn't holding sin against them. He was still talking with sinful men in the fourth chapter, the same way that he talked to sinless men in the third chapter. God did not change. He was not imputing their sins unto them. He was being merciful to them. Does that mean that he didn't have an opinion? No, he told uh, Cain, you're wrong. Abel, you're right. There was still right and wrong, but God was being merciful to people. And then Cain got mad, killed his brother. And in verse uh, nine, it says, and the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Now you're going to have to think here for just a minute. I'm sorry to make you think. Most people come to a church service and you just want to be entertained or fired up or inspired or have a goosebump go up and down your spine, but don't think. But if you'd use your head for something besides a hat rack, you could get a lot out of scripture. Here's Cain. He killed his brother, the first murderer on the face of the earth. Now today, I've heard a statistic that the average child when they graduate from high school has seen in excess of 250,000 brutal murders on television or in movies. And so we have an insensitivity, a hardness of our heart in this area that Cain couldn't have had because he didn't have television and all this. He had never seen a murder. There had never been a murder. Nobody had ever killed anybody. And here's the very first person on the face of the earth to kill another person. And while he's still got blood on his hands, an audible voice out of heaven says, where is Abel, your brother? And he just puts his hands behind his back and says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know what? That reveals a lot. Let me just ask you this. If you killed somebody and an audible voice out of heaven says, what have you done? They wouldn't have to arrest most of you. You'd die on the spot. You'd die of a heart attack. For Cain, just to put his hands behind his back and say, I don't know where Abel is. Am I my brother's keeper? That familiarity reveals a lot. It shows that he was not surprised. It wasn't abnormal or unusual to hear the audible voice of God. God was talking to Cain and Abel all of the time. And they were now grown men. They were in their 30s. This is over 30 years after sin had entered the world. And here's God still talking in an audible voice with people. 
As a matter of fact, I'm not going to take the time, but if you want to follow it, God was still talking with people up until the time that the law was given. And when Moses went up to the mountain before he received the law, there came an audible voice. And when the people heard it, they were so afraid, they cried out to Moses and says, don't let God talk to us. He's holy. We're unholy. We'll die in his presence. And Moses had to take God's word and says, the people can't stand your voice. They can't stand this. God was once again wanting to draw the entire nation of Israel back into this intimacy that he started man with. And Israel said, no, we can't stand it. Don't let God talk to us. And so God gave the law instead. It wasn't God's first will to give the law. He could have given the law to Adam and Eve. They were used to having him talk to them in an audible voice. It wouldn't have surprised them. They were used to all of this. And yet God didn't give the law to them. He waited nearly 2,000 years before he gave the law. That says a lot right there. It shows you that it wasn't his first thing. God was willing to extend mercy towards people. As a matter of fact, Cain, after God found out that that Cain had killed his brother, the Lord... Uh, rebuked him for it. There were still consequences to his actions, but God wasn't going to withdraw from him. God didn't punish him. Instead, Cain said, man, every person who hears about this is going to seek to kill me. And so God put a mark on Cain. And he said, if anybody touches Cain, I'll avenge his death seven times. God protected the first murderer on the face of the earth. He extended mercy towards him and says, if anybody comes against Cain, I'm going to avenge his death sevenfold. That is different than under the law. In the 15th chapter of the book of Numbers, you find the first person who ever broke the law. Once the law was given, the law was given. This wasn't actually the Ten Commandments yet, but in the 15th chapter, they had already instituted the Sabbath and they said that you couldn't do things on the Sabbath. And the very first person to violate that command Excuse me, it was after the law. The law is Exodus chapter 20. This is Numbers chapter 15. And the very first person that broke one of those commandments about thou shalt not, you you shall honor the Sabbath to keep it holy. The very first person who ever broke that is a man who went out and picked up sticks so that he could make a fire on the Sabbath day. And because he broke the law, somebody told on him. They told Moses about it. Moses put him in jail and held him until the Lord could uh, give a ruling on what was to be done. And the visible presence of God appeared and the audible voice came out. I believe this is Numbers chapter 15 around verse 23. And it says, you shall have no mercy. Let the people take up stones and kill the man. Because he picked up sticks to make a fire and cook some food on the Sabbath day. The very first person to violate the law was a person who picked up sticks And you killed him. The very first person that ever really sinned after Adam and Eve was Cain. And he killed his brother and God protected him. Can you tell that there's a difference in the way God dealt with people prior to the law and in the law? In the law, people's sins were held against them. There was no mercy. Before the law, God was dealing in mercy and not imputing people's sins unto them. But people took God's lack of punishment as approval. You know, there's a scripture, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it says that they measuring themselves among themselves are, I forgot, I messed that up. Anyway, it's talking about how we compare ourselves among ourselves. We are not wise. 
And this is what people do. They constantly are looking around. Did you find that scripture? I could find it. Anyway, it's, it's either first or second Corinthians chapter 10, but they measuring themselves among themselves and comparing themselves are not wise. And this is what we do. And because of it, we get to feeling like I'm okay because this person, they got by with something. They didn't fall over dead. And so I'm going to get by with it. See, this same thing happened here in the fourth chapter of the book of uh, Genesis. We just talked about how Cain killed his brother and God protected him. Look at this over in verse 23. It says, and Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah. Lamech was the first person to ever have more than one wife. Which again, Leviticus chapter 18 says that this is wrong, but he did it. And he said unto his wives, he says, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. This is old English wording here in the King James. What it means is he killed a man in self-defense. And so he felt like his killing a person was more justified than Cain's killing his brother because that was just cold-blooded murder. And so he says, if Cain got by with murder, then Lamech will get by with it 70 and seven times. In other words, what he did, he compared himself and he says, mine is more justifiable than uh, his great, great, great grandfather Cain. And he says, if Cain was going to be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech will be avenged seventyfold. That wasn't true. God didn't say that. He was just supposing. He thought he was less deserving of judgment than Cain was. So he thought Cain got by with murder. I'll get by with murder. And so people begin to compare themselves among themselves and measure themselves by themselves. And it wasn't wise. And it just began to start letting sin run rampant. And even though God did not want to punish us for our sins, he did not impute our sins unto us. And he could have done it with Adam and Eve, but instead he showed them mercy. He showed Cain mercy. He showed Lamech mercy. And on and on and on we could go with all of these people that he was showing mercy to. That was the nature of the Lord. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be merciful to our sins. But he also is holy. There had to be a punishment for sin. He was going to send his son, but until his son could come, he had to do something to limit the amount of sin on the earth because sin was destroying the human race. Even though God wasn't bringing it, it's what I call a vertical and a horizontal effect of sin. Even though God wasn't bringing his wrath and punishment upon sin, Satan was having inroad into our life every time we committed sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 16 says, Know ye not that the whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, even if God isn't punishing that sin, Satan is taking advantage of your life because of that sin. He will come in and gain opportunity against you. So God wasn't bringing his wrath on sin prior to the law. But instead, Satan was destroying the human race. Man's lifespan went from 969 years, Methuselah, down to during the time of Moses. Moses lived to be 120 years old, and he was an old, old man in his time. You know what was limiting the lifespan? It wasn't God. In Genesis chapter 6, the Lord says that man, my spirit will not always strive with man, yet the days of his life will be 100 years. 
and uh, 20 years old. That wasn't a maximum. That was a minimum that God was giving times at people at that time. And then Moses came along in uh, Psalms chapter 90 and said that a man's years will be three score years and 10, 70. But that wasn't a maximum. That's a minimum that God allotted people because their sins were giving Satan an inroad into the human race that they actually should have been dying uh, quicker than that. And God in mercy says, I'm going to at least allot you 70 years. Now that's not a guarantee. You have to cooperate. You go out and kill yourself. You can die younger than 70 years. You can eat yourself to death. And there's other things that happen. But as an average, God has given us 70 years uh, because of his grace, not because we deserved it. And you can prove that because Moses, the man who wrote Psalms chapter 90 and said that our years would be um, three score years and 10, Moses lived to be 120 years old. It wasn't a maximum. It was a minimum that God was giving. So God isn't the one that decreased our lifespan from nearly a thousand years down to 120 at the time of Moses. It was man that was allowing sin to come in and sin was destroying the human race. And if God hadn't have placed a limit on sin, done something to rein sin in, there literally would not have been a virgin left on the earth to have given birth to Jesus. Some of you think that that's an exaggeration, but it's really not. If you go back to Sodom and Gomorrah, Every time I minister on this, somebody says, well, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? Wasn't that the wrath of God? Well, it was wrath on those individuals, yes. But on the human race, it was mercy. It was like having a cancer. You know, I've read some archaeological things about Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, I can't even, I wouldn't say in a mixed crowd like this, some of the things that they've discovered about Sodom and Gomorrah. They had statues to human body parts that they worshipped. Bestiality was the norm. Homosexuality, every person in the place was given over to homosexuality. It was vile, ungodly to the max. And it was like a cancer that if God hadn't have cut that out. Now see, in the new covenant, we can get born again and we can be changed and we can be delivered. People in the old covenant, you couldn't get born again. You couldn't cast the devil out of a person in the old covenant because they're Jesus hadn't come and given us that authority. And that's the reason that in the old covenant, he had people go in and kill the women and the children and the animals. People think, man, that's terrible. Well, it's because those people couldn't be delivered. They were given over to bestiality, demonic stuff. You couldn't get them set free. It was like a cancer. You just had to kill it. You had to cut it out. And so God had to literally destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And during the time of Noah, he killed all but eight people And some people say, well, isn't that the wrath of God? Well, yes, it was wrath on them, but on the human race as a whole, it's God doing surgery, trying to get rid of the cancer that was about to destroy the human race. And it was actually an act of mercy on us as a whole. And by doing these things, what he did was get rid of this corruption that was in the human race and keep and preserve a people so that there would be a virgin so that Jesus could come into this earth and redeem us all. Overall, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 13, until the law, sin was in the world, but God wasn't imputing sin. He was fellowshipping with people like Abraham, who is living in a sexual abomination, and he called him his friend. He let a man who was living in a sexual abomination, Jacob, wrestle with an angel and prevail. He could have killed him. He didn't deserve it. 
but he extended mercy towards him. But people were taking God's lack of punishment as approval, as evidenced in Lamech, saying, Cain got by with it, I can get by with it. People began to lose their standard of what's right and wrong, and they were thinking, well, you know what? Lots of people kill. A lot of people do this. Man, everybody has multiple wives. And Jesus came along in the 10th chapter of the book of Mark, and he says, from the beginning, it was not this way. God made them male and female. And the point he's making is that he intended for one man to have one woman in their life. And Jesus brought us back to a standard. But under the old covenant, people like David, David had 20 something wives. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And he was supposed to be the smartest man on the earth. (laughs) Makes you question. God tolerated people and tolerated sin. And so God was being merciful unto people's sins, but they begin to start just in a sense, but it doesn't matter because God wasn't punishing them. They didn't see what was wrong with sin. And so they begin to start just living lifestyles that was giving Satan such an inroad that their lifespan came from nearly a thousand years down to 120 years in just over 1600 years, their lifespan decreased that much because sin was destroying the human race. So even though God was wanting to be merciful, that's the reason he didn't give the law for 2000 years. He finally gave the law to stop sin, to put fear in people. But you know, it's just like if you watch some of these commercials on television where they have a pill and they tell you, take this pill. And then they give all of the disclaimers that it could kill you. It could cause heart disease. It'll make you impotent. It'll, it, and I think, man, give me back my headache. <laughs> Mercy. Well, the law did accomplish something good. And that is that it put the fear of God in people. And all of a sudden they realized, whoops, God is not tolerating. God is not insensitive. I thought that because Cain got by with murder and because Lamech got by with murder, it's really not that bad to murder. But Man, now I see thou shalt not kill. And all of a sudden people came back to the standard of what was right and wrong. But the side effect of it is that it brought guilt and condemnation. And it made you realize, oh God, man, if this is what you demand, then how could you love somebody like me? And all of a sudden it it brought all of this shame on us. And there were negative side effects to the law. But God gave it as a temporary fix to limit the amount of sin that was in the earth until the time that the seed should come. This is an exact quote from Galatians chapter three. The law was only temporary until faith should come. And after that faith has come, we are no longer under the law. The law is not made for a righteous man. Second Timothy chapter one, it was made for the lawless and disobedient. Once you get born again, the law isn't for you. But up until the time that Jesus could come and bear God's wrath and punishment and pay for our sins, there had to be some limit on sin. It's similar to the way that we punish our children or the way we're supposed to punish our children. Today, there's not a lot of that going around. But the scripture says that if you spare the rod, you hate your child. You know, if you're just saying, well, I'll never raise my hand to my child, man, you hate them. I could give you a number of examples. I remember this one lady, she had multiple sclerosis. She was in one of my churches and she had trouble getting around. We were praying for her and she was getting better. She was out of a wheelchair, but she was still struggling. 
And she had little kids and they were totally undisciplined. She had never disciplined those kids. And I was over at her house and she, her kids were running around and running out in the street. And I went out two or three times and got them out of the street. And I mean, it was dangerous. And she says, I just, you know, I can't get around fast enough. I can't do anything with them. And I said, you could correct them. And she says, oh, I'd never correct them. And I said, oh, so you just let them get run over and that's better. And she says, well, how do you do this? And I said, do you give me permission to correct your children? And she said, yes. And I went and got this little boy. He's about two years old. I got him out of the street and I told him no. And if you do that again, I'll spank you. And he ran straight back into the street. I went and got him and pulled his pants down and spanked him. He just cried bloody murder. And I let him up and he started out into the street and he stopped and looked at me and I said, I will spank you again. And you know what? He stopped. And some people think that's terrible. Oh, so it's better to let them get run over. Our oldest son, Joshua, when he was about a year old, we were out walking in this dirt road and And it was way out in the country and hardly anybody ever came out there. And the weeds were up four or five feet high. He was only a foot or two tall. And he was running ahead of us. And all of a sudden we saw the dust from a a car that was coming maybe 60 miles an hour or something. It was really fast out on this little tiny dirt road. And this guy was just oblivious that anybody else could be out there. And I could tell that Joshua and this car were going to intersect. And he was as far ahead of me as here to the back of this auditorium. And there was no way I could run and grab him. But because we had corrected him, and when I told him no, he would stop in a dead run if I said no, because he knew that there was a consequence. Because of that, I said, Joshua, stop. And Joshua just stopped like that. And I mean, this car right by, just missed him by a foot or two. We saved his life because we disciplined. That's what the scripture says. You're supposed to teach your children that there's consequences to their action. And a little pat on the bottom is nothing compared to going out and getting run over by a car or having the devil eat your lunch and pop the bag because you didn't correct them. Man, we're supposed to correct our children. But the reason I say all of that is this, in a sense, is what the law was. The Bible says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Before you get born again, you just can't know God and understand God with your little peanut brain. It takes the Holy Spirit to reveal God to us. This is why it's so important that people receive the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues and receive the gifts of the Spirit. Man, we had hundreds of people or over a hundred people down here last night that came and received. It makes a huge difference in the way you're able to perceive God. People that do not have the Holy Spirit do not have the capability of understanding God. The Bible says, John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, when he has come, will teach you all things and lead you into all truth and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've spoken unto you. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to knowing God. And prior to the new covenant, people didn't have the Holy Spirit. There are some instances where the Holy Spirit would work with a person, but he was never in that person. It was nothing like what the New Testament believer. So in the Old Testament, people couldn't be born again. People couldn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have spiritual perception. And so how did God restrain them? It's real simple. You go out and pick up sticks, I'll kill you. 
do this and bam, here's the wrath of God. Even a lost man can understand that. A lost man can understand. You go out and do this and I'll smite you with the botch. I'll hit you with the emrods. I'll destroy you. I'll burn your barley fields. I'll send the locusts to eat your crops. Lost people can understand that. And so God gave the law with its punishment similar to the way we spank our children. Some people think it's terrible to spank your children, but it's better than having them run uh, without any restrictions on them. Even though you're administering pain to them, it actually is to save their life. And in a sense, that's what the law was. The law was something about, you think you're okay? You think that because Cain killed somebody and got by with it, because Lamech killed somebody and got by with it, that it's okay for you to murder? You don't understand how Satan is destroying your life, how lifespan has come down, how depression, sickness, and disease has multiplied. You don't understand how Satan is destroying your life. You're ignorant. You're blind to this. All right, I'll give you a reason not to live in sin. Go out and do this and you will die. I will smite you. This was not God's first choice. He, he waited 2,000 years to start dealing with our sins that way, but he dealt with it in a way that carnal people could understand. And it was very effective. And all of a sudden, people quit sinning as much because now they realize, man, there's wrath against me. If I go out and do this, God's going to get me. It limited the sin, but the sin that they had committed now had more dominance over them because they had guilt and a condemnation and a shame that they didn't have before. For those of you that were here last night, I use myself as an example that I've lived a really holy life compared to most people. Never have done a lot of things that most people did. And yet I was probably more sin conscious because I was under the law. It kept me from going out and living in sin. And yet I probably felt more guilty and more sinful than most of you who are out living in adultery and and smoking and cussing and doing dope. I've never done any of those things. And yet I probably lived under more guilt and more condemnation than most of you. The law restricted the amount of sin, but then it allowed the sin that I had committed to just totally destroy me and condemn me. And I lived under terrible condemnation. So it, it, it did its uh, job. It, it prevented the spread of sin but it also, in a sense, gave sin dominion over us. And I'm going to use other scriptures that will show you this. And it says, the scripture says that the law empowered sin. The law gave sin an opportunity against me. I was alive until the law came. But when the law came, it, sin revived and I died. This, the law did accomplish something. It showed us what right and wrong is. And it removed our deception. And here's another thing that the law did. And most people don't understand this. But there was people that because they didn't really know what sin was, because everybody was just doing whatever they wanted to. There wasn't a strict command from God about right and wrong. And so everybody is just thinking, well, you got by with this. I can get by with this. And I'm okay. You're okay. And they were not realizing right and wrong. Because of that, people were thinking, I'm really a pretty good person. And I think that if God's going to ever save anybody, he's got to save me. Because compared to Wendell, compared to Derry, compared to any other, man, I'm awesome compared to them. We compared ourselves and thought, I'm going to make it. Man, that's not wise. And so another thing that the law did, it showed us such a standard that was beyond human ability to conform. Nobody, nobody, nobody in here or anywhere can ever keep the law. 
Nobody has ever kept the law except Jesus. It raised the bar so high. It made such a high standard that one of the purposes of the law was to show you that, all right, you think you're good. You think I'm going to accept you because you're better than somebody else. I'll show you what perfection is. And he just raised the bar and gave such a standard that it would make you despair of trying to save yourself and self-righteousness. And it'd make make you throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, oh God, if that's your standard, have mercy on me, a sinner. That was one of the purposes of the law. You know, it's like if we came in here, if somebody came in here with a gun, say, all right, everybody line up. And if you can't jump and touch the ceiling, I'm going to kill you. You know what? Every one of us would die. There's not a single person in here that can jump and touch the ceiling. But see if it was only nine foot. There's some people in here that couldn't even reach nine foot, but there's some in here that could reach nine foot. And you would be under the deception. Well, I can save myself. But no, if the bar was raised that you had to jump and touch this ceiling, there's not a single person in here that can jump that high. And you know what? That would make every one of you plead for mercy and not try and and obtain some standard that would allow you to go free. In a sense, this is what God did. He just raised the standard so high. Some of you think, well, man, the Ten Commandments, that's not so bad. Well, I could spend forever talking about that. (laughs) The rich young ruler, the 10th chapter of the book of Mark, he says, I've kept all of these. And the Lord says, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. You know what he was doing? He didn't add an 11th commandment. You know what he was doing? He was showing him, you broke the very first commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That man's money was more important to him than God. He says, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. And you know what? He couldn't do it. He was showing him, you've broken the very first. You've broken every one of them. The Bible says, Colossians 3, 5, covetousness is idolatry. If you see something on TV, a flat screen TV, and oh, I gotta have one of those. That's idolatry. Covetousness. Oh man, I've got to have this. I've got to have that. I want her. I want him. It's idolatry. Every one of us has broken the law. Nobody can keep the law. But there's not only 10 commandments. There's thousands and thousands of commandments. Do you know over in Leviticus chapter 20 and 21, it gives the requirements of a priest. And a priest could not have a broken back or a broken nose. You couldn't be stoop-shouldered. You had to have perfect posture. You couldn't have a mole anywhere on your body. You couldn't be left-handed. You couldn't be flat-footed. Or you couldn't have a flat, smushed nose. You know what? I've just about eliminated everybody in here. And in the New Testament, we're all kings and priests. If you're going to try and live by the old covenant, then you got to go burn all the moles off of your body. You got to quit writing with your left hand. You got to get arches in your feet. You got to stand up straight. You got to do all of these things. Why did God give those commands? Because he hates people with moles? No, but if you're going to try and obtain all of these things by your own goodness, God says, all right, you want to do it? You think you're good enough? You think I owe it to you? Let me just tell you, here's my standard of perfection. Not so that you'd go burn the moles off your body. Not so that you'd start riding with your right hand if you're left-handed. But if you are trusting in yourself, then he's going to show you here's perfection. And anything less than perfection is unacceptable. 
You cannot make it on your own. You've got to have a savior. It was to make you quit trusting in self-righteousness and drive you to your knees. And instead, the church has somehow or another embraced all of these laws and said, oh, what a wonderful God we have to give a step one through 10,000 that we must do. <laughs> no, God didn't give the law to bless you and to help you. It was to hurt you. I'm out of time this morning, but I will continue. And I'm going to show you at least a dozen scriptures that the law revives sin. The law strengthens sin. The law killed you. The law wasn't given to help you. It helped you in this sense that it took away your deception of what right and wrong was. And now it gave you an absolute standard. You know, it's similar to a person. If you were in quicksand and if you were sinking, but if every person you saw was in the same quicksand and all sinking at the same rate, you could compare yourself and think, well, I'm no worse than anybody else. And you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know how bad everything was. But if you had some standard over there on solid ground, some measurement that showed you here's one foot, two foot, three foot, etc., And all of a sudden you could see that, you know, I used to be able to look six foot in the eye. Now I'm looking at three foot eye to eye. I'm sinking. It would take away your deception. That's what the law was. The law was something outside of just what the average person was doing. Here's God saying, here's perfection. Here's the way I commanded it to be. And it was to show you that you were sinking and you're dying and don't even know it. If you use the law for that purpose, to reveal to a person that you know what? You need a savior. You can't save yourself. You think you're okay because everybody today does a certain thing. Man, that doesn't matter. Here's what God says. If you use the law that way to establish a proper standard and to show people their need for God, then the law is a good thing. But if you use the law to try and get people into relationship with God, then it becomes a bad thing because it's going to constantly condemn them and show them that they're coming short. That's all that the law was intended to do was to condemn you. It was never intended to give life. It ministers death. The Bible calls the, the law a ministration of death. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse um, 7 and 9. It calls it death. It was a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. If you're condemned, if you don't feel worthy, it's because you are under the law. And God never wanted this to be the way his people related to him. But because sin was so rampant, if he hadn't have done something to stop it, sin would have destroyed us before our redemption would have come. So he had to put in a restraint. He did, but it had a negative side effect of condemnation and shame. And the good news is that when Jesus came, he removed that law. He is now not imputing our sins unto us. We are not under the law. That's the good news. The bad news is very few people know it. And most people are still living under this shame and guilt and condemnation. And because of it, they aren't enjoying the benefits of being without a conscious thought of sin. Not having no sin consciousness. Not very many Christians understand that because we have gone back and we've mixed the Old Testament law, tried to put the New Testament grace that they're exactly the same thing. They aren't. They're two different ways of dealing with things. You know, when I was a little kid, we lived on a street that when I first moved there it was a dirt road, two lane dirt road. And then over the years, it developed into a four lane road. And, and anyway, it was a busy city street. And my mother, my dad uh, was sick 
all my life growing up. He died when I was 12 years old. And so my dad wasn't much in the picture. My mother's the one that corrected me. And my mother used to threaten me within an inch of my life if I ever crossed that road without looking both ways. I mean, she beat me. Today, it would be considered child abuse. She beat me. And I mean, I got a number of whoopings. And so anyway, here I am 61 years old today. And to this day, I can guarantee you, if I start to cross the street, I'll look two or three times both ways. She grilled it into me to look both ways. And when I was little, I thought that the reason I did it was so that I wouldn't get a whipping. But you know, the truth was there was a bigger purpose behind it than that. The real purpose was to save my life and to keep me from getting killed. But I didn't understand that. Now I'm 61 years old. Do, so do I, I'm not, my mother died last year at uh, 96 years old. And you know what? I, I'm not worried about my mother spanking me anymore. So does that mean that I'm free <laughs> to just walk across the street without looking? No, it's still the right thing to do. I still look both ways, even though my mother whooping me is not a part of the equation anymore. I still do what's right, but now I'm not under any guilt or condemnation. And if I was talking or something, and if I just walked across the street and didn't look both ways, you know what? I wouldn't get condemned thinking, oh man, I'm going to get a whooping for sure. I just say, thank you, Jesus. I survived and lived through it and I'd go on, but You know, you'd think something was wrong with me if I fell down on my knees and said, please don't tell my mother. Please don't tell my mother. Something's wrong with me if that's it. I still do the same thing. You should still live holy, but now not because you're afraid God's going to punish you. That was only temporary until you got to a place that you could be born again. And now you've had the law put on the inside of you. And if you're truly born again, you desire to do what's right. And if you were to get out from under the guilt and condemnation, which the law makes you sin, I'm going to show you a bunch of verses where the law actually entices and draws you into sin. If you want people in your church to go committing adultery, start preaching, thou shalt not commit adultery. God's angry at you. God's going to reject you and start preaching how terrible adultery is and how God's mad at him. And I guarantee you, you'll have a rash of adultery in your church. Some of you think that's not so, but it is so. When I was a kid, we understood this. We'd, we'd get people, you know, I remember this one time trying to get a kid to walk across a log across a creek. And I knew he was going to fall in. Everybody knew he was going to fall in. I said, come on, walk, you can walk, do this. And no, I don't think so. And you know what? I just said, I double dog dare you. You know, if you're from Texas and if you double dog dare a person, there's no option. You got to do it. In a sense, what I was doing was saying, thou shalt not walk across this log. All you have to do is tell somebody you can't do it and something rises up on the inside and says, bless God, I shall. (laughs) God didn't make us to live under rules and restrictions and stuff. And there's something on the inside that resents being told you can't do it. And if somebody tells you you can't do it, you're going to do it. Matter of fact, yesterday we were in a restaurant and they said, don't look over there and everybody immediately... (laughs) When you say, don't look over there, you want to know, what am I missing? There was a drawing of a nude woman up there and everybody was looking, trying to see what it was that we weren't supposed to look at. I was running a race one time and I mean, I had put in my best. It was a 6.2 mile race and I was 
less than a quarter of a mile from the finish line. And uh, I'm a real competitor. My dad taught me that second place is first loser. I just compete. I love to compete. And I mean, I'd given it everything I had and I was getting close to the finish line. It was a personal record, best time I'd ever run. And a guy started to pass me and he could tell that as he started to pass me, I tried to keep up with him, but I just didn't have it. I mean, I had, I'd wasted myself and I just didn't have enough. And he started pulling ahead and he got two or three paces in front of me. And he looked over his shoulder and real sarcastic. He says, you could do better than that. And man, when he said that, it's like the incredible Hulk. Something just, man, I rose up and I mean, boom, I passed that guy up. I beat him by a hundred yards in the last quarter of a mile. And when I got to the finish line, I collapsed. I don't know where all this energy came from. But you know what? There's just something that says, thou shalt not. Something says, bless God, I shall. And God knew this. And so for those of you who thought, oh, I'm so holy, I'm better than these people. I'll make it. I'm good. God said, you think you're good? You think you can just get in because you're a good person? Thou shalt not. And all of a sudden this flesh rose up and you find yourself violating every law that he gave. That's one reason God did it. You know, this last instance, and I'll quit with this, but I had a pastor listening to this exact teaching and he said that he was, he was getting it. He was seeing it. And he said, he looked out the window and his son was out there with some of his friends playing in the backyard. And he thought, I'm going to go check this out. So he walked to the backyard, uh, back door and he called all of those kids to the back door. And he said, now kids, you've been playing great. And they'd been out there for an hour or something. He says, you're doing fine. He says, but whatever you do, thou shalt not spit on this flower. And he pointed at a flower. <laughs> And then he closed the door and went inside and he looked out the window and he said half of the, they had played for over an hour and nobody had even noticed that flower. <laughs> but the moment he said, thou shalt not spit on this flower, he said half the kids walked straight over and spit on it. <laughs> and the other kids sat there with their mouth just drooling, wishing that they had enough nerve to spit on it. The moment you say thou shalt not, something just says, oh, I want it. There's some of you that don't even like chocolate. I don't know how you survive if you don't like chocolate, but let's just say that you don't even like chocolate. But if I, if I said, you can have a million dollars if you'll go one year without chocolate, thou shalt not drink any chocolate, eat any chocolate, no contact with chocolate. Even if you didn't like chocolate, did you know you'd start having a lust for it? And God knew that. And that's one of the reasons of the law. The law doesn't set you free from sin. The law entices you and draws you into sin. And God did it specifically to open up your eyes that, you know what? You can't save yourself. You need a savior. It was to bring every one of us to the end of ourself, to put us all condemned, all on our knees saying, oh God, if this is what your standard is, none of us have made it. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Instead, people have manipulated the law and said, it's good. Just do these things and God will accept you. And you can't do all of those things. Nobody in here has ever or will ever keep the law. Jesus is the only one who ever did it. The law was given to shut us up unto faith. 
Man, if you can understand what I'm talking about, this will help you understand the Bible in a way that you've never understood before. It'll show you the goodness of God. And I'm going to continue to talk about this and explain some things. Actually, I've just set it up so that I can start teaching now on the new covenant. Amen. So come back tonight and we'll deal with that. Thank you, Jesus. Let me ask again, there's a lot of new people here today. And is there anybody here that you've been under the deception that you're so good that you can save yourself? That maybe you're, you're doing everything and you think that Jesus might just help you where you were a little weak and you haven't committed yourself completely to Jesus. You need to be born again. You need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And if you've already been born again, But if you don't have this baptism of the Holy Spirit, like I was talking today, you can't understand. I can promise you without the Holy Spirit, which there's a lot of things that happen when you receive the Holy Spirit, but one of them is you speak in tongues. If you haven't received this gift of speaking in tongues, then you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't received it, then like I was talking today, you won't be able to retain what I'm talking about. It may sound good right now, but you walk out these doors in an hour, you'll lose it. Because you cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God just in your natural mind. It takes a quickening power of the Holy Spirit. You must receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And some people think, well, I believe I got the Holy Spirit, but I don't speak in tongues. Well, I received the Holy Spirit before I spoke in tongues. So I don't believe you have to do it. But when I started speaking in tongues and yielding to the Holy Spirit... The power and the presence and the benefit of the Holy Spirit increased in my life a hundredfold. There is no reason not to speak in tongues. Somebody says, do you have to speak in tongues? No, you get to speak in tongues. It's a privilege. It's an honor. Why would somebody not want what God's got? Some people think, well, they don't preach that in my church. That's the reason I'm not in your church. That's the reason I had to rent an auditorium. But I'm telling you, the baptism of the Holy Spirit... And speaking in tongues is real. And you need it. And if you don't have it, it's like charging hell with a water pistol. You need power. Jesus said you would receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You need power in your life. Is there anybody here who would say, I either need to be born again or I need to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues? Anybody here like that? I want you to raise your hand so we can pray for you. Anybody? Praise God. Here's some hands over here. Yep. Y'all are thinking about it. You know, it's either yes or no. If you don't speak in tongues, and if you would like to speak in tongues, you ought to have your hand up in the air. That's how simple it is. Somebody says, what are you going to do to me? I'm going to give you a free book. I'm not going to hurt you. You know, we had some hands go up when I said that. I'm going to give you a free book. We're going to pray for you and help you, but there's no reason for you not to respond to this. If you lifted your hand, or if you were supposed to lift your hand, didn't do it, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward? And we want to pray with you right here and help you to receive. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Just stand right here, brother. Appreciate it. Space me. Stand right here and we're going to have you stand beside each other instead of behind each other. Kind of get beside each other, spread out. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Last night, how many did we have, Melinda, that came forward? 
130 people came last night to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? Thank you, Jesus. I tell you what, this will change your life. I was introverted. I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. The baptism of the Holy Spirit radically changed my life. Totally, totally changed me. I believe you're going to become stronger and horseradish. <laughs> and you'll never be the same. This will be good for you. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Before you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you first of all must be born again. You must know beyond any doubt that Jesus is your personal Savior, that you aren't trying to save yourself by your good works, but you've humbled yourself and accepted salvation as a gift. Is there anybody up here who's never done that? And first of all, we need to pray with you and make sure that Jesus is your Savior. Anybody? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. We need to pray with you to be born again first. Here's a lady down here. Anybody else? Here's a man right here. Anybody else? You've got to be sure. Jesus has already forgiven your sins. He's paid for it, but you've got to humble yourself and put total faith in Him and not in yourself. Anybody else? Are you sure? I'm not trying to talk you out of it. It's just that you got to be sure. And there's so many people that are just assuming. They think, well, I'm, I'm trying. I hope it's good enough. If you're hoping that you're saved, you aren't saved. You need to know. The Bible says that you have a witness in yourself and you know that you've passed from death unto life. Anybody else? Here's another one down here. What I'd like to do is just lead you in a prayer. Jesus has already paid for your sins. Salvation is accomplished. Now it's just like he's holding it out and saying, will you trust him? And the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, it says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. He's already paid for everything. It's already done. It's just a matter of will you receive it and you receive it by making Jesus Lord. That's more than saying the words. That's a real heart commitment that you're turning your life over to Jesus. It doesn't mean that you'll never do anything wrong because you can't live that, but it means that you're willing to let him take control of your life. Y'all willing to do that? Amen. Well, then let's everybody repeat this prayer. Say these words. Say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. And I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you are alive. That you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven. In Jesus' name. Amen. You believe that? Awesome. Welcome to the family. Praise the Lord. Man, that's great. You know what? You still look the same on the outside. If you were a man, you were still a man. If you were a woman, you're still a woman. But on the inside, you're brand new. And I've got a book that will explain to you what happened. You've got to understand it to get the full benefit out of this. Now, according to the scripture, every one of you are 
born again, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He created you to fill with his Holy Spirit. God wants to fill you more than you want to be filled. That's important that you understand that because you don't have to beg. You don't have to plead. There's so many people that just cry out and ask and then never believe that God did what he said he'd do. You've got to believe. So we're going to just ask one time. We aren't going to plead with God. We're going to trust his word. He said, if you be an evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He promised he'd give. So we're just going to ask. I'm going to ask our prayer ministers to come up here. And we're going to lay hands on you because the Bible says that when you laid hands on people, the Holy Spirit was released into their life. So we're going to agree and release the power of God into you. And then after they lay hands on you and we release this power, I want you to quit asking and thank God that he gave you the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you feel like. Doesn't matter. God promised he'd do it. I want you to take a step of faith and just ask. They're going to lay hands on and then... At that time, I want you to lift your hands like when somebody sticks a gun in your back. This is a way of saying, I yield, I surrender. It's your spiritual antennas. The Bible says that you lift up your hands in the holy place and you bless the Lord. This blesses God when you do this. And so we're going to ask, they're going to lay hands on you. You're going to lift your hands, start thanking and praising God. And then those of us that know how to pray in tongues are going to start praying in tongues because the Bible says... 1 Corinthians 14, 17, when you pray in tongues, you're giving thanks. We're praising God in a heavenly language. And so I want you at that time, when we start speaking in tongues, I want you to quit thanking him in English and start thanking him in tongues and start speaking in tongues. And I know some of you think, I don't know how to speak in tongues. What do I do? I've got a book that will explain it. I'm not going to take time right now to go into all of this, but it will explain it. It will answer all kinds of questions. But if you're ready, you can speak in tongues right now. The Holy Spirit won't force you to do it. He's not going to take your mouth and make you talk. You have to speak. It says in Acts 2, 4, they spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. You do the talking. The Holy Spirit doesn't talk in tongues. He inspires you. You have to speak. If you're just going to wait on the Holy Spirit to force you to speak, it won't work. You have to speak, but by faith, believe it's the Holy Spirit. And once you start doing it, man, the power of God will flow. You'll know that it's the power of the Holy Spirit. And I've got a book that'll explain it. But if you're ready, you can pray in tongues right now. Is that good? Y'all going to do it? The Bible says that believers shall speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you that they are now born again. That they, everyone here is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come into our lives. We open up the doors of our temple. We welcome, we invite your power. We want to have your supernatural Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. We just receive now in Jesus' name. We lay hands on you in Jesus' name and say, receive the Holy Spirit. We loose this power and anointing to flow into your life right now. And Father, I thank you that from this moment forth that the Holy Spirit is flowing in us, filling us, quickening us. And we also receive this gift of speaking in tongues right now. Those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's start praising God and thanking God. Those of you that have already received prayer, let's put your hands up. Let's thank God. 
Thank you, Heavenly Father. And as we speak in tongues, we want you to join in with us. Just start speaking right now. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear the person behind you saying, but it, your tongue will be unique to you. It'll be different. It won't be the same. You can't say what they're saying, but you got to start talking. Trying to say what you hear somebody else saying will get you talking and then don't quit. Just keep talking. Keep speaking. What you're doing, you're bypassing your brain. You aren't praying any of the doubt and the fear and the confusion that's in your mind. You're praying out of your spirit. The Bible says when you speak in tongues, it's your spirit that prays. The part of you that's in union with God, you are speaking out hidden truths from God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You know, you may not know what you're saying and you may think, well, I don't understand. That's the reason this is so important. It bypasses your logic. It bypasses your own thinking. It gets you into the spirit realm. You're communicating with God by faith. And when you first start, it's not usually very fluent. It may not sound like much of a language, but it's just like a little child when they speak to their dad. Boy, their dad knows what they are saying. He knows what you're trying to say. Don't worry about what it sounds like. Just speak. Thank you, Jesus. Boy, just about every person that I can see down here is praying in tongues. I believe that you are communicating with God out of your spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Isn't that awesome? You may not understand this, but I tell you, it's powerful. It's powerful what God's doing. Let me have your attention here for just a minute. Sorry to interrupt you, but you know, it's super important that you understand what happened. And sometimes people have uh, wrong expectations. Some people have been exposed to the baptism of the Holy Spirit where they expect you to fall on the ground and flop and scream and yell. And there's nothing wrong with a person feeling the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. But when I received the Holy Spirit, I didn't feel a thing. Matter of fact, I was disappointed. I thought that's supposed to be more than this. But you know what? I finally just started operating in faith. And man, the baptism of the Holy Spirit made a profound difference in my life. And you need to understand this. I've got a book that will explain it. There also may be somebody here who didn't speak in tongues and you're wondering, did I really get it? God gave you the Holy Spirit, but you have to learn to cooperate. It took me a while. It actually took me three years after I prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit before I spoke in tongues, but that's because I was a Baptist. Amen. And praise God, it doesn't have to take you three years. I've written the things in there that confused me and hindered me, and it can help you. So we want to give every one of you a book to help you understand. I've written this out and it'll really, really be a blessing to you. So where's whoever's taking them? Oh, it's Ashley over here. Right there is Ashley with his Bible up. If you would follow him, we want to give you a book. And also if you have a question, there's people that will answer your questions. They'll pray with you. We just want this to be a big, important decision in your life. So follow Ashley right here. Praise the Lord. Isn't this great? Let's praise God for all of these.
Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Well, I guarantee you, this is going to change their lives. You know, that's close to 200 people in two services that we've had that have received the Holy Spirit. At least 175. Isn't that great? Praise God. Wonderful. God bless you. Thank you, Jesus. I tell you, if that affects their life half as much as it's changed mine, they're going to be blessed. Baptism, Holy Spirit's awesome. These are our prayer ministers here. These are people that have been through a training with us. These are people that aren't just begging God to heal, throwing a prayer out there. We're taking our authority. We've learned how to pray. And if any of you need prayer, we'd invite you to come right now and receive prayer. You can get up out of your seats and come let one of our prayer ministers pray for you. Also, I'd like to announce that, you know, we've started having our prayer meter, prayer ministers up here an hour before the service. And so if you need prayer, you can come before the service and somebody will be here to pray with you. And praise God, we're seeing some great miracles. Maybe tonight we'll get some testimonies about some of the things that have happened. But if you need prayer for anything, just come forward right now and let one of our prayer ministers pray with you. The rest of you, you're welcome to stay if you'd like to and pray with us. You're free to go if you need to. Remember that we have CDs and DVDs already duplicated of last night and this morning. And they're available out there as well as our other materials. If you were touched by Pastor Derry and Karen Jolly and want to help that ministry to Nicaragua and Mexico, they have a booth out there. I encourage you to stop and sign up. You'll, you'll be blessed to be able to be a part of that. God bless you. Thanks for coming.